So I have a voicemail from um, apparently India, you told me. No, it's from the IRS. It's from the IRS. Yeah. I was legit scared. I mean, it's tax time. You get a voicemail with someone saying that you're committing tax fraud, you know, you get nervous and <laughs> do, then you laughed you, at me. Do you have a guilty conscience <laughs> at all? Um, I pay an accountant to have a guilty conscience. Yeah, for there, you, there you go. <laughs> The problem is that there's spillover effects. <laughs> I'm not insulated. I, I think that if you were to call that phone number back, that random Connecticut phone number, yeah. if you were to call back. So you knew back, it was from Connecticut. No, no, you had told oh, me. Yeah, it was, okay. You were like, the IRS Connecticut branches. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, it's a little naive sounding. There would be someone that was um, clearly not living in the u.s or or uh, i don't know how to say that correctly. a foreigner yes a foreigner that um would tell you to go to target or walmart and buy itunes gift cards and transfer it to them to pay off your irs debt i mean if i get a discount <laughs> on my tax burden it might be worth it you'd be like oh i, I like the irs now they use apple products <laughs> exactly um I've been working on Mirage and add-on doc stuff. It's pretty cool. Nice. Oh, yeah. You got the Mirage site is now an add-on doc site. Yes. So I just, over the weekend, I like pulled the trigger on it. And I was like tired of, you know, well, I had been working on it for a while, but I just, there was no clear cutoff over period for me. And I was just like, I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't going to take the site down. But then I was like, I don't really, it's not a huge deal if it goes down for a little bit while, as long as I have enough time to, to make it working again. You mean like like while you were migrating for like 30 minutes or two hours or whatever it was? Exactly. And just because I had never done that before. So, um, but yeah, it was pretty fun. Um, I have the add-on doc site up now. I had it in a branch. I had been working on it, but the current site is a GitHub pages branch. So, um, yeah, so stepping back, like Mirage has master branch, but it also has, um, man, my voice sounds so low. It's because I've been sick. Sound fine. I was singing like Barry Manilow earlier. What'd you think of that? <laughs> I think it was a little John. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a little John. In my head, it w I wanted to sing Barry Manilow. It's a, it's, don't worry, common problem. It's really easy to get those two confused. <laughs> but then I just started singing Get Low by Little John. It really is low, though. Low. Um, so the GitHub Pages branch in um, your repository is like a Jekyll app. And GitHub Pages knows how to build Jekyll apps. So you can just start a new repository and just push a static index.html to GitHub Pages and you'll have a GitHub Pages site. So you can put a static build of anything on GitHub Pages and it'll just work. I see. But if you included a Jekyll app, it would then do no. all the Jekyll compilation steps. So you could create a new Jekyll app, which is a Ruby static site generator from like five, ten years ago, which is like not cool anymore because like Gatsby's cool now. But it would be as if you took the source of that and instead of having to do like Jekyll build and then upload it, you just upload the source and then GitHub knows how to they, actually they can do it. detect that it's cool. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome, which is like nice for just saving yourself that build step. But then you have like two code bases to manage. And in, in, in reality, it's kind of annoying because like you have this Ember app that you're using to like test and, you know, for your, your dummy add on. And, and we've talked about this before. And um, then someone wants to update your docs and they have to like edit a Jekyll app and like most of the time if it's a quick edit they can just edit um the markdown file so it's fine but yeah it's just annoying like every time I would work on that you pull it down for some reason I run bundle install and like the Jekyll app doesn't work and even though there's a lock file and it's because some Ruby version is not so supported anymore anyways I work on this once every year and a half so yeah frustrating yeah for sure 
I'm already keeping Mirage up to date. The dummy app already works. I know that. So that's the beautiful thing about add-on docs is it's already there. So the idea with add-on docs is everything's in master. And then as part of a deploy step, you do a build of your doc site. And then you just overwrite that GitHub pages branch. And you force push it up to your repository. And then you're just serving that built version from GitHub. And add-on docs does some logic so that you can have multiple versions. So if you think about it, kind of what I, the way I broke it down was like, okay, first I want to get the GitHub pages branch to be static, like static assets, not like a special unicorn anymore where it's like a Jekyll app with like a gem file. Cause it's just like static. It's going to be all managed by us now. Mm-hmm. So first do a static build of the Jekyll app, put that in GitHub pages, force push it. Boom. You've lost the source code forever. It's gone and it's gone. So I like saved a backup on my local computer, but that was the first step. So at this point you have like just a disk with like all this. And it's funny, right? Because yeah, it's just like you, you never think about this, but the static bill of a Jekyll app is like a thousand index.html pages and like all these directories. It's like, that's like how the internet started. So if you want to change something in the nav bar, you have to change like <laughs> a thousand, thousand files. Yeah. You have to like start grepping your way through this thing. So no one's going to touch that thing. It's just like a dist. But um, that got the site working again. And um, then the next step is like get the add-on docs infrastructure in place and move all that stuff into the versions folder. And the versions folder is what add-on docs uses to leave old builds of your old version site untouched. I have a question here. So did you have to build a Jekyll app for like every single version of Mirage and then put it in the correct add-on docs folder? So the way I did it was I had already had versioned docs in my Jekyll app, but it was all the same app. So I had, I just copied like the docs. So when I went from like 3x to 4x, I created a new like folder in the Jekyll source called 4x and started by copying 3x. So a single build of the Jekyll app actually has all versions. So the only thing I had to do was take the things that used to be in like docs slash docs slash oh, the 3x and then take that part of the app and move it into versions 3x and the GitHub pages, new GitHub pages file structure. So I was actually able to do this while leaving the root app the same. So the root app was the, the build, but then I just started copying these things and putting them in slash version slash 3x. So if you went to embercylimirage.com, you got the same site. But if you went to slash version slash vo.3.x in the old site, that's not a URL. It didn't point to anything. It would be a 404. Now it loads the same 3x branch, like the 3x, a copy of the 3x docs. The 3x HTML. Exactly. Except like now it's two steps lower. And so the references were wrong. Like if you think about like the asset references and stuff. So I was like, should I like rerun Jekyll build with the right base URL? I just did a find and replace and changed everything. It was super easy. So I actually just made copies of all that stuff. And um, that was basically it. Um, so that was like, in terms of like zero to downtime deploy, there was a time when like emerson.com was the original thing. And there was also a copy of each version at slash versions. So then the next step was going to be to get the add-on doc site at the root. And um, that's what I did next. So I did like a static build of that. And then... I think I just pushed it and I think it just worked. And so like once I pushed it, I merged my like new site PR, which had been open for a long time, but was ready to go. And I let, I did Ember deploy production and add on docs did it thing, did its thing. 
left all the old versions untouched, but then replaced what was in the root. And it worked. And I could still go to like slash version slash VO3X and see the old stuff. And um, there was like one problem. You have to like add the versions to the versions.json. So the version selector works, but that's pretty cool because now like in the new site, I can do select old versions and it just shows me the old site. It's pretty awesome. Super cool. And um, there was something that didn't work for a little bit. I'm trying to think what it was. The ass, the CSS, the assets, I had to fix the paths. Um, I have a question. Were there like, were there URLs on the old site that are no longer working? That's what it was, the redirects. So all the URLs in the old site, so like the sidebar, you would click installation and it would be a pointer to slash docs slash VO2X slash installation which now was not a thing anymore. Um, so what I did was set up, first I was, this is this is all the stuff that I was, it was, it was the redirect stuff. So you wanna preserve all the old URLs. And fortunately for me, the old URLs had slash doc slash version tag in them. So I could, I could set up those rules. And so basically like the current site slash docs is like part of the add-on docs guides. But if you go to slash doc slash VO2X, I'd want to forge you to slash versions VO2X. So then I set up that redirect in the root. And first I did it on a static way. Um, that's fine. Once I got the Ember app running, I did it with like window location or something like that. Now, GitHub Pages, it's it's just a, a static like HTML static site server. So there's no like nginx config where you can say like match this url but there's a hack that you use to get single page apps working which is the 404 page hack which is if you hit a url that doesn't have anything to serve um it will 404 and you can use that root 404 page to redirect to the root with a query param and load your spa and have the router update and do its thing so that's a hack so the 404 page basically acts as like a, a unknown url router yeah, exactly. Cool. So I added some logic there. It's pretty hacky, but it's like if it's slash doc slash 30x, if that matches, then go to slash version slash 30x slash rest. And it worked. Is there any problem that the programmers can't solve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it's like I have some JavaScript in there with like VARs, you know, because <laughs> nice. it's like you don't, it's weird. And then I think, I forget, I think I might have moved the redirect logic into the Ember app at, at some point. I can't remember. I think I did, but then I updated the old URLs. Anyways, it was all pretty routine. So everything works. So if someone had a a like just random Mirage page bookmarked um, in like their onboarding documentation. Exactly. They click that link, it still works. That's that's awesome. That's and that's super impressive. Yeah, it'll forward it to the slash versions, but it'll work for sure. Nice. Yep. So Very yeah, nice. pretty cool. Um, and now there's a new site there. Yeah, I, I looked at this. Um, did the old Mirage site have API docs? No, so the old Mirage site had handwritten API docs. So like there was a collections markdown file in the Jekyll app, which was often fell behind the actual API from the code base and had missing methods that weren't documented. I see. Because that's one thing I noticed that immediately caught my eye, I think, was that collection page. And I, because collection in Mirage is something that I use all the time. Like I'm writing custom route handler and I'm, I have some collection that I'm dealing with. And I pulled up that page. I was like, oh, wow, there's there's functions here that I had no idea existed. This is so cool. Yeah, first or create or whatever, yeah, things yes, like that. Yeah, stuff like that, where I, I always just use, like, was it like where yep. and all and find? Yep. 
Um, but yeah, there was there was other stuff and yeah, it was just super cool seeing it in add on docs, seeing the API reference. I was like, oh awesome. More stuff I can abuse. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's so nice to have it there. And like, so I did all this. This was like on Saturday, I think. I um pushed the new version. I didn't I didn't tweet about it, I didn't talk about it in Discord. Um, and within like an hour, I I was like, I had finished and I had stepped away from it. I looked at my email. And someone had submitted a PR with, you know, the dummy app has like a title tag in like HTML, like title for the tab. And it still said dummy since it was the dummy the app. default. Yeah. And the person was just like, yeah, now that now that um, Mirage, now that the dummy app is the doc site. And then he had like exclamation point in parentheses because he was excited about it. We should make the name Ember side Mirage. And I was like, this is so cool. Like it's an Ember app. This guy knows Ember like it's super. He, he just, yeah, goes right to the index file and change it. Yeah. I mean. If it was a Jekyll app and you put the title of dummy, yeah. I don't think it would have been. I mean, we can't prove this, but I don't think it would have been fixed that quickly. Right. Right. So exactly. That's super exactly. Cool. And the, just the fact that it's just in master, it's just awesome. Yep. Do you have any plans to do like demos now that your doc site is an Ember app? Do you have plans to do like demos and make Ember components? To you betcha. Show off? You betcha yeah. I do. Yeah. I have, I have a ton of ideas. I want to go through and do every single type of modeling relationship and have an isolated Mirage server that you can show similar to what we have on storefront, but make it even cooler. So I'm, I'm stoked about that. It's going to be awesome. Hey, you know how we were talking about like having an interface for like running Mirage in different environments, like in node and wherever. Mm -hmm. Do you think that like, forcing yourself to have like an isolated Mirage instance in these different components will like help you flesh out. That oh, a hundred percent. I was thinking about this, you know, we've talked about like readme driven design before. So I was thinking about this actually because after doing all this, I started working on Ember animation site, Ember animation, Ember animated, Ember animated, uh, has an add on doc site. It was a little out of date and there were some things that were confusing me about it. I was trying to learn the library. So, one of the things I did in, in add-on docs was add the ability to specify a brand color. And that affects like the hero background on the homepage and the link color and all this stuff. Ed had chosen this really nice pink for liquid fire. And, um, you know, he had Ember animated as an add-on doc site, but it had that same orange as the default orange. So I kind of updated add-on docs, made sure it all worked and um, set that as the brand color. So as I was doing that, I was, you know, reading the docs, trying to understand sprites and transitions and motions and all this stuff. And I was thinking like they have some demos there that are stressing some pretty complex cases, but it's really missing like a quick start. And um, you really want to tell that story of how it works. And you have an Ember app there. So you want to, you can just start using this stuff. And, you know, it's really interesting because when I've done a lot of this kind of writing documentations in this style and you want to make a great demo and, but you want to, um, show the only the important pieces of what you're showing so for example um let's say you do a demo but you don't want to be distracted by a bunch of tailwind classes you just want to see the ember animated code so but you want to do it in a way that's not you're actually looking at the real code that's powering the demo so that actually forces you to come up with the right abstraction so that you can progressively introduce it but it's using in a real situation and so I actually think that's exactly right what you said, which is basically it's kind of a long-winded way of saying I experienced this not only when working on the Mirage stuff, but also on the Ember Animated is that I want to be able to tell what's the simplest story I need to tell in the quick start to get you to start learning this. And that should actually drive my API design. 
yeah. the same way that it should for Mirage. Mirage, here I am wanting to show you this mock server thing. What's the simplest way I can new up a server with minimal configuration and make it super clear for you to understand? Yeah, talk about outside in. Yeah, That's exactly. Super powerful. Super powerful. So um, 100%. So, so a- absolutely, as a result of this, there's going to be a more flexible way to use Mirage introduced because right now you install Mirage and you run your Ember app and you just, you know, it's just a, it's just a, a opaque initializer that just boots up Mirage and it's a singleton. And now I want Mirage instances, you know, maybe here and here. So I'm going to have to think about how do we do that given there's like a single, sing, given Pretender is a singleton and how, how can I have maybe two servers running at a time and all, all that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to, to tackle that stuff. But absolutely, you should be able to do that. And you can think of all sorts of ways this would help end users. So we were just talking with a company who was using Mirage to demo their um, their component style guide for their app. Some of their components are data loading components. And so they just use Mirage right there to show how that would work. And so now you can think, yeah, if it's just, if it would be that easy to just, you know, my component so, has a dependency on like a server. So now I can just use the mock server here and it's all right there you don't have to it's very easy to use that i'm writing a style guide and then i yeah i just have a clear box yeah. that i can draw around it here's a server component here's a the ember component here's a template yeah pretty super cool power, yeah super powerful so um that'd be pretty awesome i think it shouldn't be too bad um it'll be interesting thinking about the, the pretender stuff i really haven't thought about this that much yet but yes i definitely want to show all of that stuff in, in directly in the docs um the timing stuff that's the other cool thing like in the animated docs you can there's tons of animated examples and you can there's a global um thing that comes from another add-on he has called like ember animated debug or something and it has that thing from his his ember conf demo where you can slow down bullet time um it's pretty cool nice yeah ember animated has a ton of awesome stuff um yeah the docs are not quite there yet um I, I know I suffer from this too, but we've definitely talked about this before where it's like there's so much in there and there's so much that people aren't using because it feels completely locked away, but it's all there. It's just like how do you convince people that it's worth working on, you know, telling the story in a simple way and also like making sure there's a lot of polish. You know, we've talked about this before, like how can we help bring more polish to the, the the ecosystem and these projects because that has such a big impact you want like a study or something that says like if you were to spend an extra 10 percent of your time instead of writing that next method polish up this demo and you're gonna have such a bigger impact <laughs> yeah i think i think you know as a coder it's very easy to write more code yeah it's very hard to write write docs yeah come up with like nice stories and compelling examples. It's just hard. I think tools like add-on docs nudge you towards that. Mm-hmm. In fact, you were talking about the quick start and it would be cool. Like could add-on docs ship with something that's like, Hey, we, we set up a quick start file and it just like has headers. Like, how do you install this? What's the very first, does it have generators? No, that's the very that's, first thing you could write. I've thought about that actually, because yeah, how can, how can it help basically the tool do even more of that stuff? And it's, I see, I saw a lot of people with add-on doc sites in the homepage was like, you, it gets you far, but then the actual homepage is just, you know, there's not much there. And so you have to do your own stuff, but there could be something there that just gets you started. So there, there could be more we do there for sure. Yeah, for sure. 
back to back to like you bring up like the polish and convincing people to to do that it's i mean it's hard it's like you know do you want your library to have more features or more users i think you really you really have to be conscious of of the um how are people going to use this yeah you just have to be like thinking about that at all times and that's something like we we suffer from we definitely I, suffer from. I feel like we like are always, always asking that question, and stuff still slips by. Totally slips so, by. So if we weren't asking that question, I yeah. can't imagine just yeah, our stuff. We'd break APIs. Our stuff would just morph all over the place. I had this thought related because I was looking at Ember Map, and we were had just done the upgrade, and I was just cleaning up some stuff in there. And there's so much about the design right now that's like that bothers me. That could be better. And um, you know, there's sometimes where it's like we're trying to work on consulting projects or we're trying to work on, you know, Mirage or, or, or something else. And um, a lot of times we're making videos for Ember Map and that's like the most important thing we've decided to do, right? And so it's like, you're gonna spend time on Ember Map, you wanna make another video for your subscribers as opposed to like polishing things up. But, um, but that polish is definitely important. And um, so, let me try to step back and, and say what I had this thought where it's like, I think the answer to this is that the thing you're working on, the thing you're working on needs to be worth being polished or else you shouldn't be working on it. So I think the reason polish gets uh, set aside is because people work on too many things. So Adam talks about this with his stuff. He basically says, I never work on anything unless I'm going to take it all the way. Like I'm only going to put things out that are really good end to end full triangle. Like we talk about, right? So there's times where we have things that are like, there's bugs open in storefront or there's a docs page here that doesn't make sense. And I think that's a symptom of being stretched too thin and not focusing. So the question is like, if the Ember Map homepage or the sales page is not where we want it to be, then um, what is that competing with? And if it's something we want to work on, then yeah, we shouldn't. It's kind of like the bug-free stuff that we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's something that you should go all in on. Otherwise, you you shouldn't take it on. And I think like, yeah, you can argue there's people who are helped by a library that's like half finished, but like got some functions out there. But could the impact be better if you had scoped down and worked on something end to end. And like usually our answer is like, yes. Net net impact of all your projects. Exactly. Yes. That's what you want to maximize yep. or whatever. That's your maximization utility function. What do you, okay. So let's say like um, we over rotate and we add too much functionality to a library, kind of realize six months later, like, oh, this, this problem is insanely hard. Um, how do you, how do you correct that without so one answer because that's going to happen. Right. The point and, is not to say that that's never going to happen. The right. point is to have a process that that, uh, right. that respects that. Because one answer here, that. one answer here is just delete everything. Yes. Yes. Um, but that that feels wrong. Right. So what what is what? I think you want to communicate it first of all. So what happened? An example of this is add-on docs. Sorry, the weather went from like forty degrees to like zero degrees, and everyone in New York City got sick. Everyone, <laughs> like in the last week. Wait, what temperatures did you do? It was like forty degrees. And then it became like zero degrees or yeah, like five like degrees. Six degrees. Yeah, it was like six degrees over the weekend. Yeah. And it just happened instantly. So I don't think the everyone. human body can take that. And then I talked to people in Canada. I'm like, what the heck? What are you guys doing up there? That's not what humans are meant to do. What do the humans do who move there first? They're just like, 
sitting around. It was like beautiful in the summer. They're like by lakes. And then it starts getting colder. I'm like, that's kind of weird. And then winter comes and they're like, holy smokes, we're freezing our butts off. And then they make it through like seven months of like negative 10 degree weather. And they're like, yeah, I think we'll stay here. And they just set up camp. Really short term memory. I mean, seriously, like you're in Minnesota or in Canada. You just went through six months of this grueling winter. And you're like, yeah, I think I'll uh, I think I'll stake my claim here for future many, many of my family's generations to come. Like wh- what's going with these? It's like, oh, by the way, uh, Uncle Fred went down to Florida and he's he's loving it. You know, I just don't understand. I love New York, but. It would be nice to be on the West Coast in sunny California sometimes, yeah. I think, have yes. that thought, especially around this time of year. So um, an example of where this happened in add-on docs is people started using add-on docs after we announced it for private add-ons and their own add-ons. And we had done a bunch of stuff to optimize the use case for open source add-ons. We install like deploy things. We assume you're deploying it to GitHub pages and it's going to be open source. Now, you can remove that stuff and hack around it. That's fine. We hadn't really considered a case where you want to document a component that brings some styling along or like a lot of styling or even like global styling, which is a valid use case for an open source add-on. So if you wanted to use add-on docs to document uh, Ember Bootstrap, you're going to have problems right now because Ember add-on docs, Ember CLI add-on docs has styling of its own. And um, there's like just not a good answer to that right now. Set that aside for now. The main thing was like documenting private things like for your app. And there's like a lot of things about it that make that use case hard. That's not really a use case that we wanted to start with. And it expands the problem space significantly. So what we did in this case was like we actually just clarified that this is for open source add-ons. We changed like the description and like put it in the docs and stuff and just talked about it. And so... There's a ton of people using add-on docs for internal uh, add-ons and internal component libraries. That's awesome. But I, my kind of line right now is like it's going to be painful and I'm not sure if or when anyone's going to get to that use case. So if I was in that situation where I wanted to document an internal style guide right now, I would not use add-on docs. I would copy some of the demo code because that's one of the big ones, that the demo component. I would just copy that and make it myself. That's what I've done for some that's people what we we've did. worked for. I think Ember Maps, Ember Maps code base had that for a while. It might still, I don't know. but Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, it's just a different problem. So I think that's one thing. Just being aware of the fact that, you know, as opposed to like, as opposed to um, when I started Mirage and people start asking for features. I'm like, yeah, yeah, add it in, add it in. Now you have to be aware of this, right, that it affects the scope of the project. So I think that's one thing. I think that's probably the most important thing. You'd rather just give someone the bad news and tell them up front um, that, you know, what you're asking for is not supported, and I don't have an estimate right now. So um, what else can you do? I think um, sometimes it does mean, like, I mean, you don't just delete the repository, but I do think there is, uh, uh, option for like scaling back we've done this with ember map before we've built features and realized that we underestimated the scope or hadn't thought through some states like we were going to have like single topic purchases and we just decided not to do that because we hadn't we just didn't yeah we, yep. we didn't have the resources for it another thing we've done is is we have come up with a high level api realize it's just it's it's way too complicated there's more use cases than than what we had thought of and we'll split that thing up into multiple low-level APIs. And yeah, it's a little more clunky, but hey, you can compose those low-level things to accomplish any high-level thing. You just have 
you have to deal with like the API pain. Exactly. I think that's another aspect of this, which is like a sign of maturity, being able to admit that you don't, you can't foresee all the ways it's being used. And so if you have an idea for a high level API that you want to end up with, um, sometimes you need to reel that back. And um, it's going to feel disappointing to, to not be able to do that thing that you wanted to. But it's also, again, like a, I think it's a sign of maturity and just being a little bit humble and saying, this is what we want. What are, does this decompose into? What are the smaller pieces? What if we were to ship the smaller pieces and let people use it for a little bit and get feedback on it before we commit to the high level stuff? So that's kind of, I think, you know, for example, like Tailwind, like MRCI Tailwind. I, I was like, you have to install Tailwind. This has to be the high level story. Ember knew my Ember app, Ember install Ember CI Tailwind, Ember serve, and you've got Tailwind wired up. Now, it turns out that means that Ember CLI Tailwind has to know how to include the Tailwind file into your app. And given that we live in a world of apps and add-ons and nested add-ons, that's not as, that's, um, that's a little bit harder than it sounds. So you can build up to that, but maybe as a first step, it would have been better to provide like one function that gets added as a part of the default blueprint to your like build file, Ember CLI build file but that you can delete and it's just a low level escape hatch. If you're like, I'm an add on land and I want it included over here instead of over here, mm-hmm. or I want it vendored instead of to end up in app CSS or something like that. So I think there's usually different ways you can go, you know, fast boot and fast boot app server, same thing. Like maybe it's nice to have a fast boot app server, but maybe you just start with like fast boot that visit and yeah. let people figure that stuff out because you're taking on by taking on the high level thing, you're taking on a, a bigger problem space for sure. So, um, I mean, in hindsight, the fast food stuff in hindsight, I feel like it's, it's super obvious, but only in hindsight. Right. I think before all this happened, you would say like, yeah, we should, there, there should be a fast food app server. There should be an easy way to run production fast food apps. But I think if you've had this experience and you've fallen down into this trap a few times, then you would be asking different questions and, you, and say, you would be yeah. able to anticipate it. Yeah. So, um, just like with the storefront stuff, we know we want to end up with like a data loading component, but we're not there yet. We're just not. And if we yeah. tried to do that, it would be a, a mistake. I mean, yes, I've already <laughs> written, written, changed the APIs like four times. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. And like we've, you know, we've, we've seen this glimmer as a rationalization of Ember. Ember animated is a rationalization of the primitives of liquid fire. So it's not as like easy to use, but the building blocks are there. So that's back, bringing this back. Like that's, it's good, but you still want to, yeah, there's Com- the communication. here. Yes, exactly. I feel like that's a, that's a big missing piece because it's not. It's not that you're admitting failure. Right. It's that you're you're just steering the ship a little, and yeah, end users are going to be super happy to use to use something that it might be lower level, but at least it's like where your current thinking is. Exactly. I mean, what you just said applies to to Tailwind. Adam was talking about having a tool like Purge CSS built in. We haven't used Purge CSS yet with our Tailwind projects because it just haven't, and it's not been a huge priority. I want to get Purge CSS wired into Ember CLI Tailwind because it basically should be like a prerequisite because it's basically the idea of how it's supposed to be used. But if he had waited until it was ready, all the people who are using it and getting value out of Tailwind now wouldn't be. So I got some news for you, buddy. Uh huh. We actually do use Purge CSS. <laughs> it's going to blow your mind. But this is a great example. Um, in Fastboot, we take all the CSS and we inline it and then we strip out the CSS that isn't used on that page. If we had left all the CSS there, we'd be shipping 
tons. Yeah, yeah, tons yeah. Of, so we strip it out. And um, but the Ember app doesn't. Ember app the, just the pulls the whole work. thing. This is yeah. just fast food. But but I had looked at how do I do this? I tried a few different things. I found Purge CSS. Um, I tried that. It worked. And then it, like it was kind of clunky with Tailwind. And I on Adam's website, he has an example of how to use Purge CSS with Tailwind. Mm. And it's like. It's not like this magical function. Right. It's super low level. It's like, oh, make a new Tailwind. Tailwind has a thing. It's like, not Tailwind. Uh, Purge CSS has a thing. They call it extractors or something like that. Uh, he's like, just make a new Tailwind extractor and and give this as a code and it'll just work. It was awesome. It was like a super low level mm-hmm. escape hatch. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. It's good. It's good to, to, to think in that way instead of like, how can we do this for everyone? Yeah. Yeah. And Which ha- is tempting because you've, You've been on the good side of that and know how pleasant it is, but sometimes you are boxed in by that. And yeah, we've yeah. talked about this. Especially with Ember. Ember, Ember, that you want to be a good community member, buy into right. that Ember mentality. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, um, anyways, that's that was pretty cool. You can check out embersofmirage.com to see the add-on doc site. It has a theme. It's like this cool blue that like matches the logo. I have like a new logo I want to incorporate into the home page. And uh, Liquid Fire has like the purple theme, and and Miguel just messaged me, and he has like an add-on called Ember Yeti Table that uses add-on docs, and he saw the theme update and and used that, so it's pretty cool to see it being used in the wild. Like once I had the infrastructure stuff to, dealt with, and I was just working on the add-on doc site, it it felt pretty powerful. Like it felt like this was like this is super solid. Like it still has lots of bugs. Like there's but you can just see what the open bugs are. But um, as, a, as far as like a shared ecosystem tool goes, it's pretty sweet. Like the deploy stuff that Dan worked on is awesome um, to just not have to think about it. Because I've done this for several open source libraries now, written documentation sites, had to make all these decisions about the styling and everything. Um, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, so I've used add-on docs and I've never used <laughs> anything else. And the reason I've never used anything else is because it's like I just don't want it. I don't want to deal with that stuff. Yep. I do a GitHub readme yep. and I move on. And and add-on docs is super pleasant. Yeah. Super cool. present. So yeah. Um, gotta fix like there's some glaring things now, but this now it's good. I actually have a motivating use case. Like now that Mirage is a site, it's like my project and I want it to be people to be successful with it. I want search to work. Search sucks right now, but I'll fix an add-on docs, which will fix it for everyone. So I'm excited about that stuff, you know, and just being a real user of it too. Nice. I mean, we were before, but in a more pressing way. So, um, yeah, we have to figure out like the, we don't have to talk about this, but the blog and there's some use cases where that are interesting that some right now things are such that every build, every version of your app is its own unique thing because of dependencies. And originally we had thought about having like top level app and then like it can pull in the versions of the docs, but that gets tricky because of dependencies. So you don't want to worry about you're working on your 3.6 add-on and you want to make sure it still works with like your 2.4 version of your docs and the Ember versions and all that stuff. You know, it's yeah. impractical. So you need some sort of um, sandbox, some sort of container to isolate things. But then you do have some cross-cutting concerns like a blog. So we're going to have to figure that out. But I think we can come up with something good. Nice. So yeah, add-on docs has been fun. Mirage now has like maybe one bug left and then like figuring out the faker and and um pretender stuff about how to pull that in best and then we're ready for 1.0 so then i can ask the community like what should be the next most important thing to work on so i'm excited about 
about getting back to like new feature development in Mirage. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I used um, I used a new add-on <laughs> called Ember Bind Helper, and it's awesome. Uh, it it's doesn't also, sound awesome. It sounds like it's super low the level. Super, most low level <laughs> thing that doesn't affect me at all. It is the way it works. <laughs> so what it allows you to do is awesome, and then the implementation is awesome. I love everything. About okay. It. Um, I think like the GitHub README has like a, a like code. What is the thing that like grades your code for maintainability? Um, code climate. Yeah, something like that. It has like a D. Okay. But that's just because it's an Ember app. That's that doesn't matter. This thing is awesome. Uh, so you know when you use the action helper, you do like action some action. That is going to create a new function for you with the the this the this of that new function is going to be the location where you called action mm -hmm. so that way if you call action in like a template uh and, and then, then you pass start that in pass that around the the this helper the sorry the this context is going to be where you originally created that action so the creator of the action is pointing to some action called like update counter and it's called like this dot increment property count yeah and you do action update counter and you pass that in component Da, 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 and you keep three levels that, down yep. and then that person clicks a button it's still going to update the state on the root component exactly because uh, the action helper is the thing that closes over the actual function and, and sets the this this creates so this is great mm -hmm. when you're when you're just dealing with like things in the action hash or you're passing actions around but imagine you have like an action on a component a function on a component or you have a function on a service and you want to pass that thing around so if you do like action my service dot my service function uh, let's do like think of is, an example like um you have the counter you have a, a global counter on a service or like current user dot current user dot what's the service function that a user would have uh um, maybe log out okay right because you, yep. you could make this argument you can log out from anywhere yep maybe you could put that in a, a renderless component provider component but let's just say it's on yeah. a service yeah um, yeah, so you call, you want to pass around, you want to take that thing that's on a service, wrap it in an action function, and then pass it down to other components. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's like a modal component or like um, a confirmation component, and you just want to pass an action to it, and when you click OK, it fires that action. Mm -hmm. Now, because this thing lives on a service, if you do like action my action current user service dot log out, that this context of that function is not going to be current user service. It's going to be the the template where you invoked that parentheses action helper. I see. So if if let's say that logout um, within the service used this, so it said like this dot get user dot logout or something yep. like yep. that. Yep. But now when you do action current user dot logout, it's going to invoke this dot get user, but this is going to point to the component where you rendered that action helper. And it's going to say, I don't have a user property, and it's it, going to undefined as not a function. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So so then, like, sort of like the quick answer here is like, oh, put an action, put like an actual function on your component, have the component inject that service, mm. and then have the component just get the service and, and call the actual function on it. Mm -hmm. um, and this works well. Like, this is what I do 90% of the time. Um, but I was in a situation where I was... I was building these components and I just wanted to pass in functions from services and mm -hmm. pass in functions from other components. Like you, you could refer to like current user dot 
log out in a template and that was it you didn't want to have to go to like the component and create an action yeah. cache and inject and everything it's like a control it's like a flow like it gets me out of the zone when right. i have to do this so there's a thing called the bind ember bind helper and it does it it gives you it a bind. To set the context yes so it gives you a bind that works just like the action helper so you would do bind instead of like action my service dot log out you would do bind my service dot log out and what it does is it sets the this context to that parent object oh so cool the, the, this context. and you don't have to like pass in the service again as a second argument no so so so, this is, so it's basically like so in javascript if you ever had um current user and you just did current user dot log out open paren close paren the this is automatically sent by the object that holds the method that's just how javascript works and so this basically replicates that yes. it's as if you were to say on click equals current user dot log out colon colon yes so it's just like an immediate invocation of it that's wrong term to use but it's a it's a it's a invocation of it with again the this pointing to the owning object yeah so it works just like just like in javascript the context is like the parent object i think that's the best way i can describe it mm -hmm. um and it's pretty amazing you don't that's just it that's that's so all you just do curly curly bind space current user dot log out and that is going to close give curly you, that is going to give you an action that's going to call current user service dot log out and this context is going to be the current user service okay so how does it do this, that this is like the <laughs> mind-blowing part so bind is is a helper that gives you a function back that gives you an action but there's also a um what do you call it there's like an ast transformation build time transform build time transform so so the real api of the bind helper is really bind like my service dot my action space space my service my service yeah because it needs to yeah it's it actually to... it's actually target equals my service mm -hmm. because if you did my service that would be like the you'd be uh, partially applying mm -hmm. the first parameter of the function okay so so yes but yeah exactly yeah, yeah, you yeah. do need that extra you need a reference to the you, object yeah you pointed that out earlier yeah You're yeah like, what, what, what? how so, is this doing it yeah right so there it does this build time transform that actually adds that to your code but you as a developer when that's you're awesome. writing the template you don't have to worry about that and that's, that's awesome that's one thing i love about this um it's one thing i love about this add-on it's like yeah it's super nice and the solution is super creative very uh, creative yeah now i will say if you you know I'll probably only ever use this like a handful of times, right? But there are situations where, where it's great. That's really cool. That's really cool. So that's Ember Bind Helper, and of course, it's named after the JavaScript function bind, yes, which is um, a method on every JavaScript function that you can call and set to this context to, or apply function oh query arguments to it. Yep. Um, so that's what it's named after. That's really cool. Yeah, lifesaver. I love um, I love the 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 helper versions of JavaScript functions. I find them really nice to use. Things like the map and take and all this kind of stuff um, in the template. It's really cool because it's like declarative and it's just it's just neat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Com composable helpers is yeah. a, a default install on every app. Yeah. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what else you got in the list? All right, let's take let's... a look. Um, what was I going to say? I think, um, yeah, that I could see that being first class. Like, I, I could see there being a first class API in Ember for invoking a, a method on a service. 
it's sugar over injecting and basically doing what you just said. Yeah. I, I, I actually like, yeah, because I guess with this, you would still need to inject right. to get my service into right. the template. Exactly. So I could see, I could see, it's like global, it's like service yeah, global action. service action. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Service action. Yeah. My, my yeah, service case, action. I'm using on, on this podcast, I'm using an example of, of a service action, but I had functions on a component that I was passing down into child components and I didn't want to re basically rebind them. Yeah. And I also, there's like a lot of like polymorphism going on yeah. here. So I didn't, they weren't, it wasn't always clear what the names of those things were. So being yeah. able to just use bind helper to recreate this was. That's cool. Yeah. But service action would be interesting for something like a logout button that only ever calls one method on your singleton uh, session service. To me, that's like a perfect example of like a nice high level API. Yeah, because what do we do now? We have like a logout component, and the component injects a service. Yeah, and the, yeah, just fine. I mean, it's good that you can yeah. build it with that. You know, I wonder though if there's something here where it's kind of like route action, where people see service action and then they just go crazy with yeah, it. Just all action. It's on too services. easy to do that. It's like too easy. Yeah, this is like a thing that that I'm really excited about this. Yeah, but you, I don't want to use it all the time. Sure. It's actually really rare that I want to use this. It's just awesome that it exists when, when I need it. Yep. So. Yep. Cool. Um, we can do, I had like acceptance tests. That can be our last topic. Yeah. You want to do that? Sure. Okay. So um, I don't know how to start this off. Like I think a lot of times we start with acceptance tests. Like we just start. If I'm TDDing a feature, I'm usually starting with an acceptance test. Why? I, I kind of have this question, like, why? Why are we starting with acceptance tests? I kind of know the answer. But, yeah, this this isn't really my... Because everything you're writing is an implementation detail of a feature. And you shouldn't test implementation details until you need to. Is it implementation detail like of the actual like user interacting with the page? Yeah. Yeah, and then, okay, and you shouldn't test... It's right, like, until they become like a public API. Exactly. Right. That's how I would boil it down. So once you once you make uh, a component like reusable, it's going to be used by other developers in other areas. So you want to test the public interface, which is like what happens when I pass in errors equals array of this. But like as far as your components go for the feature you're building, it's all about your user and you're using them in one place for the purpose of the feature, you know. I would say like even if we're not, so I guess before I continue here, I, I want to be clear that like I'm talking strictly as an application developer yeah. and not an add-on developer yeah, yeah, right yeah. now because I think that might change things a little. Um, mm -hmm. But even if I'm writing a button component, it's a first I know this thing is going to be reusable, but mm -hmm. it's the first time I'm writing that button component and it's on a page where you click the button, it submits a form. I'm not starting with an integration test. I'm starting with an acceptance test. Yeah. And it's like, even though I know this is reusable. And in fact, I'll, I'll probably even, the second time, the third time I use that button, I probably will start, continue to use acceptance tests. Yeah, the only thing I would say is if it helps you at, the, at some point to start writing integration tests so you have an isolated environment for that button, then, then you could use that. The point where I usually start writing the integration, the rendering testing, whatever we're going to call them, mm -hmm. um, is when I'm like recommending to a colleague, hey, you should use a button. And then at that point, I usually 
will drop down and write a few examples in a rendering test and an isolated component test to show off how to use it. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't. What makes you, what sparked this conversation? What made you think of this? So, uh, a few things. Um, I've been like kind of lukewarm about TDD and UI apps. I think the feedback loop is like way too slow. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's bad when you have to rename stuff. And so I've been trying to do more TDD. And so I found that like, hey, if I just jot out an acceptance test, what should be happening, regardless of, of what components are used or how they're wired up, because that wire, when I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, that wiring is going to change. Mm -hmm. And because of the test runner slow and the feedback loop is slow, it's like TDD is just painful. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not it's not painful with the acceptance test approach. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy shit, like I actually like TDDing now. Like putting pause tests in your your test or or are you saying like literally writing every single line of the test and having a failing test yeah L like red green refactor writing one test having it fail now it's it's super super high level and even things like the test ids get renamed and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's painful mm -hmm. again because of like the speed and the slowness right um but yeah but, going into it you can say that at the highest level you can say i should build click a button put my password in click submit and i should see yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter how like what so this that actually was example of the thing that made me think about this mm. is entering a password. Mm. It doesn't matter like how that password gets transferred to the server, mm -hmm. how any of this stuff mm -hmm. happens. It's just I want to capture that and mm -hmm. then later on I'll figure out like how all that wiring comes up. Right. So if I if I try to test a component like an actual like login form component, right. that thing's going to change so much. Yeah. Yeah. Another another reason this came up is someone had taken our email course and emailed us and basically said like um that's right know, it was the smart components email yeah and our smart components uh basically says like put put actions that do mutations entire inside of your domain components because that's like the best place best logical place to put them right um there's a few other reasons but we'll just leave it at that right and the person said yeah but this is hard to test right it's hard to you know it's just hard to to test a one function that's buried inside of a smart component that interacts with maybe the Ember data store or other services. Yeah. And like my sort of gut answer is like, yeah, it is hard to test, but you're making a smart component. It's, it's how you start off. It's the implementation detail of the page of the feature. Yeah. yeah. And, um, therefore I guess that means if like, that's my answer, that's our answer. It kind of means we don't write a lot of unit tests. Right. We don't. And you've said this before, like at a, for a framework like Ember, a lot of the things are unit tested already. So a lot of your job as an application developer is to wire them together to support a feature, a business feature of your app. And so um, that's why you're writing tests against the business features of your app. Sure, sure. With unit tests, let's take a harder example of like um, component integration or rendering tests, whatever we're calling them. Right. Those, you can still write meaningful tests the test behavior with yeah. those and you're not just like retesting yeah you're, right. you're testing business logic yeah you're, yeah but still we don't do that a lot yeah we don't but there's times where you have a form and like maybe you do so you can do that i mean you can wire up mirage you can wire up the Ember data store the services that are needed without needing like a um a particular ui part of your you know route hierarchy rendered mm -hmm. and you can go to town on that but it is harder and it's um it's also a second step yeah. I guess the reason I want to talk about it, I'm more interested in like the fact that like 
we can do this. We have done it, but 80% of the time we don't do it. Right. It's and just, I, I just think it's, yeah, it just comes down to if you were writing an object in OOP, you would start by testing the public methods of that class. And you would, you would intentionally do that because you know the private methods are going to change a lot. Yep. So, um, and that's good practice. So why not do that? So, okay. Why not do that with a component? Why not say I'm writing a component, components are, are objects, I'm going to test no, public. but that's but the analogy. No, the analogy is that the component is actually a private method for your application. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. The component is a pro implementation detail of the UI. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And you're testing the UI. Exactly. Where Until it, where it becomes a public method. If the component becomes public and other people are using, now you're, you're using it, of course. But if it becomes used in many places, yep. then it becomes public, and you should write tests to cover that public behavior. Yeah, are, are other folks use are other folks writing a lot of acceptance tests and then very few uh, component tests and then basically zero unit tests, not zero, yeah, five or six unit yeah. tests, yeah, which is what our code bases look like, right? Um, I, I would want to know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I think based on what I've heard, the kind of steel man argument for the other side or the the, the perspective of the other, the charitable interpretation of a defense here would be. Um, you know, acceptance tests are awesome because they give us a lot of guarantees that the behavior is not changing and because um, they, they test kind of end to end the whole system. But the reality is they're, they're complex and they are slow. They get slow over time and um, they also cover up a lot of the details such that you can do something like create data or visit a route and have no idea what's happening there. So you as a developer are just kind of like kind of clueless what happens what went wrong if a test fails because yep. they don't have a lot of information purposefully deliberately so and so um you can move a lot faster if you write lower level tests the lower level tests also have a good the, the, the another charitable argument here would be like if you do that then your the reality is like your button component is not just a little implementation detail it's like a thing that's going to live in your code base for a long time so you want it well designed and if you're not doing lower level testing you're not going to get the feedback from the tests that the tests provide and uh, which will influence your design for the better so you could say like if you were to tdd if you were to test drive some of these components like outside in approach being like start with a feature acceptance test now i need a button so now you go down to the integration test or even the unit test and you're like okay here's how the button's going to be used in this template even it's only going to be used once i'm going to integration test it and here's how it's going to be used in that one case. And I'm going to like make it easy to test. So it's going to influence the design. That would be like, I think, you know, an alternate perspective. But for my sure, opinion. Sure, sure, I get that. And I that's like that's like an awesome approach from like a TDD standpoint. That sounds amazing. Right. But we don't do that. Like, yeah, just, we don't do it because there's a cost associated with it. Because the details of those components do change a lot, just like private methods do. And you would rather have that flexibility and be guaranteed of the external behavior. So um, from my perspective, that's. That's why we make that trade-off all the time because people who are trying to unit test the model hooks on their routes end up with all sorts of issues. There's it's it, those tests are are there's a lot of boilerplate to set them up, and they actually don't stress the business use case of your test of your application. So I don't think they're super valuable. Yeah. Now we do unit test methods or objects if. They're complex and we're writing them ourselves, but we've never really written a unit test for a single function, let's say a model hook on a route before. Um, 
because the reason you're running that model hook is to display some something in the template and i want to see that right whereas like with the button you have a smart button that shows a loading spinner with an async task and it's like the reason you're writing that button is for this route and this route and this route and this route and oh we've just learned now that we've used it in 10 places it is behaves in this weird way when it goes from state one to state four so now I want to go to my integration test and represent those states more easily so that I can understand them and wrap my mind around them. Yes. Yes. So that's that I think that's the answer. <clears throat> that's our answer, anyways. I, I want I I mean, obviously I agree with you. Yeah. Obviously. I want to know if it's good. That's why I pay do. you. Yeah. To agree with me. <laughs> yes. I don't pay you yes by man. the way. I'm a yes man. Um yeah, I just I want to hear what other what other folks yeah i think um yeah it can get big and slow i guess but i think you can solve those in different ways i'd still rather have the high level um the high level uh guarantees yeah i mean we pay we pay like 10 bucks a month to split our ember test suite across 16 different nodes yeah and it was super easy to set up so i know but but no again <laughs> to be charitable like we yes. have a super simple app and like I know, no, I work on a, I work on another app that takes twenty minutes yeah. to run the test suite, and there's I think there's something like two thousand acceptance tests, and we actually had to write some, we had to write an npm script to basically wrap Ember exam to speed this stuff up, and yes, it's it is so yeah, there's some downsides, yeah, no doubt about it. The question is like, where would you rather be? I guess, and it would absolutely be interesting to bring someone on who has a opposite perspective or at least a different mm -hmm. take on it and hear what their experience was and what happened after they switched and all that stuff that'd be a great conversation for me for me we'll bring a, weapons yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> for me a big factor here is speed and i cannot speed of what just speed of development feedback loop speed yeah when i alt tab to q unit and i get a message that says cannot find module 9 fb 13 that's just like a huge, like that just stopped. That just stops me. You're gonna have to explain yourself. First of all, when you say speed, that makes me think you're talking about you would prefer lower level tests, but that's not what you're saying. You're saying I I I, I grand scheme of like feedback from from when I make a change yeah. to how do I get feedback that my change was in the use case that you're you care yeah. about. And then if I have to go move a bunch of tests around or change a bunch of filters in my testing URL and yeah, uh, it's just that stuff just stops me. You're just me. saying so if you were constantly moving between kind of levels of abstraction in your tests as you were building a feature, it would be more difficult. I yeah, a lot of times a feature can be done in one sitting and or, or or in kind of one even if not in one sitting, it's one conceptual level because you don't you don't have to go down and do all these mm -hmm. crazy levels. Again, I've said this before. When I built, when I worked, when I built the ORM for Mirage, I was like, th there was parts of Mirage where you're high level, but that stuff you were like, you go down really quick and you spend months down. Yep. So you need that. Yep. Again, I'm not arguing. You are arguing. I'm not arguing against component tests because I do find them useful. Yeah. But I don't find them useful when I start TDDing a feature. And I think that's mm -hmm. for something about there's something about that that I think well, that's is interesting. interesting. That is interesting. So maybe I mean you could potentially you could potentially let's say you had like a style guide and like a component um, style guide here for your app, and you know you need um, yeah a panel or, or a card and you don't have that yet, 
and but you know the three ways you're going to represent it so maybe you you write the rendering test for that thing first get that into your style guide and you know that those are all the use cases that need to be supported by your feature now when you go to the feature you're like doing it in a separate pr the thing already exists there if, if that were the case that would be awesome but the thing is i don't know i yeah, have like a very yeah. high level view of the feature i'm building which is usually like a sketch mock-up right. or like a whiteboard mock-up right and then i'm like okay i think i need this component to right. do this but it turns out that actually i need that component to like do split into two components and do data down actions up between between each other and in that case where it's like when i'm trying to tdd that it's like now i'm moving test files around I'm yeah 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 freaking changing these testum urls it's just mm. like the feedback loop is so slow where whereas when i have a single like i can fill in a password click login and see that i'm logged in acceptance test mm -hmm. then i i feel great about just moving stuff around making changes yes. seeing that i mean that's always how i've done it i mean honestly i've never gone through this situation where i'm like I'm going to force myself. I have tried. I, again, I've done TDD on Mirage for sure, but I've never been in an Ember app and, and forced myself. What would it feel like to just grip my teeth and do this thing? Because I, if you took away that flexibility for me to, that's why I use pods. One of the reasons, because again, to me, this is all implementation detail. I'm just trying to get the feature to work. I totally want to be able to move things around, paint with the brush stroke, and then come in and fill in tests at the end or while I'm doing it to help me, help guide me. For sure. That's always how I've done it. Um, I've been liking the TDD stuff if it's at that right level, highest level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not even. Oh, the, oh, oh, oh I see what you're highest, saying. Highest, yeah. highest level. As right. soon as you try to, and again, button button might not be a good component because we all know, in some sense or the other, we all know the interface of button. Yeah. Right. And so, but like, what happens if it's like login form? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That might be split into multiple. It yeah. Might be like, is there a provider that's tied to it? And like, all that stuff just means that all those changes. If you're writing a component test, you're now every time you make one of those changes, you're changing your component test. Yeah. And that's just yes. that makes a feedback loop. Super I see what slow. you're saying. So you're saying you've gone past the point where you've already written tests for a thing and you go back up to the high level of acceptance test and you realize you need to change something. And so you have a bunch of tests that you just wrote that now need to change. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Screw that. So I I've been doing the acceptance like TDDing through acceptance tests. Yeah. I like it. Because those are not going to change because that's the yes, thing that, yeah, that's yeah. the subject of the PR. Now, the things like the test IDs will change. Right. And you kind of have to scratch your head and, and figure that stuff out. Right. But generally, like the name of the test is not going to change. Right. The module of the test, you can just. Right, right, right. I should be able to submit this. I should be able to log into my account. Right. Boom. That right. thing is never changing. Right. So. Right. I see. Interesting. Maybe someone will, will, will yeah, send I, us an I, angry tweet. I feel like I'd welcome it. The way I talk to other people about testing, I feel like we're in the minority here. I don't know. Dan Abramov just tweeted basically exactly what we're talking about. He tweeted that this week. He's like, I've never understood. He's like, I've never. There's a bunch of discussion about this. He was like, TDD with UI development feels wrong, or it feels like I've never really gotten been able to get in the flow. UI development feels too um, not up as a well defined kind of contract that you're verifying, and so trying to put. Um, assertions to it the way you would with like an api for example or an objects interface feels hard and so um i need to like play around before i do it we've talked we have a no. podcast episode we call like test before commit or whatever yeah it's that's but uh, i got i that that podcast has been changing some of my views about this because i've i've been thinking like maybe you actually can tdd yeah ui as development. long as you keep it high level enough yeah i i really like the thing that is like 
everything everything below like clicks and fill-ins yeah. are just implementation yeah. details. Yeah. So you're yeah. not yeah. TDDing a component. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. You TDD yep. the UI. I really like I guess it was, but would someone just argue then you're not actually TDDing because like you're so high level that, I mean. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe. Yeah. But then I, I might. But who cares? I mean, you are. That, my thing would be like that sucks. And yeah. It might just be the tooling. Like this could be a total right. tooling issue. Right. Um, but yeah. I'm also, we can say this for another time, but I'm also not sure where I stand on this question of like people talk about testing, testing, uh, improving the interface, the design of your interfaces. And that like the, the test suite that you have as a result is like a side, like a side effect. It's not even like a benefit. It's like, it's like, Oh, the fact that you have a test suite that covers the behavior at the end of it is like, how do people talk about it? They say it's a, um, it's like a, uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's, it's like, like a second or secondary or third. It's a benefit. side effect of of you using the test to drive API. Design. You could just throw away the test when you're done because the real benefit is that the design is like what? Well, that's that's just not true. No that's one, ridiculous. no one is gonna. If you have a public, have to, public interface, yeah, exactly. I have thrown away tests throw before away. for sure. Private interface, yeah, tests, of, yes. or just lower level things. Yes. That I, yeah, even if they were public, but that was like this is not gonna stay probably. So, but if you had the public interface yes. tested, you wouldn't say like. Wow, this public API is amazing. I can throw away yeah. all the tests. Like, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. So, anyways, but we can talk more about that next time. All right. So, are you feeling good now? You're going to be able to continue your work as a craftsman, craftsperson, an artisan. You're going to write handcrafted, artisanal, homebred tests. The 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 acceptance with test, organic test IDs. The acceptance test TDD stuff is pretty good. I'll leave it at that. It actually is. You should try it. It's okay. pretty good. I'll try it. One test, get the test mm. passing. Another test. I'll watch you. I'll watch you do it. I mean, what? How many tests are you talking here? How many? How many do you start with? How One. many would you write out? One test. Okay, but that's not like when we TDD in Rails, we would write out like six and say like. Yeah, hey, but you're I'm, not. But this is this is why I this is. Uh, <laughs> it's not. You're actually supposed to your TDD. You're, you're supposed to do one test. Oh like, really? Like. I should be able to log into my account and then like whatever to get you to log in that thing that checks your password since you only have one test that thing's just going to return true yeah and it's yeah like, no, I, should, I know i shouldn't be able to log in then you go on to the next thing i shouldn't be able <clears> to log oh, into so my i see account. the failure is supposed to drive the other test cases yeah it, well no 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 so it's like i can log into my account and you have a thing that's like it's return valid true. password yeah it just returns true because you're only running one test then it's i should be not be able to log in my account without a valid password so that forces you to write the failing test and then you the idea here is you only ever have to change your code. The smallest amount to get the test passing yeah. so you have a confidence. And you're yeah. not. And but you're, you're not. still thinking of the test cases in your mind. Yes. So you can still. Well, yes. And and everyone just like opens up a notepad or a test file that writes comments yeah. or they write skips. It's yeah. like, oh, I need to test this. I need yeah. to test this. I need to test this. So it's so how your mind. And it's fine. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. No reason to sacrifice. Uh, pragmatism on the altar of tdd i mean why would you even what what's the point of that what well because are you're getting i don't know like just maybe you're getting worried that people are gonna think you're not cool (laughs) no maybe you're like you're getting too far ahead you're thinking about too much i mean certainly yeah i could see that can happen i could see a situation where you just start like trying to writing out all these use cases and and getting thinking about use case c while you're writing use case a just stop it just don't do that <laughs> that's what i would say if i was like a senior developer at a company so just like stop doing that 
That's dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> I still use, I, I've been using QNIT to do a lot. So QNIT to do is like you can write a test and if the test fails, QNIT won't show an error because it's a to-do uh, and it's expecting you to just basically say like, I haven't written this test uh, yet. Um, that's cool. Yeah. And then if the test starts passing, the test fails. Right. Because it's like, it's basically the inverse of tests. And I think, uh, the, uh, uh. I think there's some other stuff. Like I think it, you can set it up so it fails in CI. So you can't push to-dos to CI mm -hmm. and stuff that's, but I've been using that as like a placeholder and yeah. Yeah. Again, I think, I think there is something here with this TDD stuff, but I think it is, um, yeah, I think you have to be at the super high level. To me, what's more important is what is a better process to get us to think us being UI developers to get us to actually consider the states that we aren't considering when the first time when we write this stuff. So you talk about TDD until you're blue in the face, but if it doesn't help me ship a less buggy app, the biggest bugs that we see in UI is because, especially the stateful UIs we build, is because you hadn't thought, you coded that episodes route and you hadn't thought what happens if three of those episodes are on the homepage in a bookshelf. You click on podcast and now you got three of them coded, but you need to load the whole set. So what happens? Because you built that whole thing thinking about slash podcast. So mm -hmm. that's what I want a, a process or a tool to help me with whether it's like automatically going through my app in a certain way or something. So I guess this, this is a good thing. Like TDD, you actually, you upfront, you have to know all those states. Yeah. And so it's not going to point out those states to you. It's yeah. TDD is going to say, um, yeah, if you don't have a test for that, well, your code probably doesn't cover it because you never wrote a test for it. Right. So that's interesting. <laughs> all right. Well, are you almost <laughs> done with this feature? I don't, I don't know if this TDD thing is really uh, <laughs> really paying its dues here. That's a whole nother, whole nother rant. All right, well, you can stay late today. We'll buy you pizza. No, we are not. No, 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 no. Yeah, you can stay until 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're going to stay oh, and oh, finish oh. the feature. So I'll finish the feature and you'll give me pizza. Wow, wow. Why don't, you just, why don't you just give up? Like all our programmers pizza every night. You'll get your paycheck this well, month, too. <laughs> I'm around the one with a bank pass. <laughs> yeah, I logged into the bank account today. I know how to get in there. <laughs> Don't look at the bank account after December is depressing. <laughs> and with that, we will see you next week. Thanks a lot for joining us. Bye. Rate us on iTunes. Bye. <laughs>